The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I'm so excited to welcome my guest today, who is an incredibly talented designer, television personality, and also a man. My first ever male guest on the podcast is none other than Brandon Maxwell. The American designer launched his eponymous label in 2015, and his collections have been worn by everyone from Michelle Obama to Lady Gaga to Oprah. Aside from being a ridiculously talented stylist and designer, Brandon is engaging, honest, and hilarious, and the type of person you could talk to for hours, and in fact, I did. This episode ran long because we had so much fun catching up, but if there's one thing we need right now, it's that pick-me-up you feel from a good conversation with friends. I hope you enjoy his interview as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Hi, Brandon. I am so happy to see your face today. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm so happy to see yours too, all the way in California. I know. Doesn't it look kind of sunny and beautiful where I am? I know. I haven't been there in so long. You know, I'm usually there all the time, and this has been almost a year since I've been there. How have you been getting through the last few months? Are you in the city? Have you been going into the office at all? What does life look like for you over the past few months? Yeah, I'm in the city. We've been here since, so we we locked down pretty early, like the end of February. And I think I went out one time at the very first week of March to do a talk show. And I haven't really left my house since. I think there was a three month period where I never even went on the street, you know, because in New York for the first couple of months, it was very scary. We were bleaching everything and we're touching everything. And so I, there was about three months I never left the apartment. And when I finally did, I cried. But we went last month for my birthday. We go to Nantucket every year around middle of September to top of October. And so we did finally go to Nantucket and get out. But, you know, good. We've been here the whole time. And as you know, I, I usually see you not in New York, but I'm someone who is on the go. Yeah, I'm always on an airplane three to five times a week, usually on average. And so I want to preface all of that by saying, like, for me personally, nothing is good when anyone is sick and dying. I think nothing can be good. But as someone who has never slowed down, you know, this time being home and being doing normal things has been good for my mental health, I would say. Yeah, I think that that's been one of the sort of collective responses from a lot of people across the board. Obviously, first and foremost is everybody's health and well-being. But beyond that, I think that there's been a real good assessment of people's understanding of the value of their time and how they want to spend that time and a reprioritization of their value system and and where they want to put their energy moving forward. What about for you as a business? There must be so much pressure. Obviously you have, you know, you have employees, you have a business to run, you have limitations in terms of what you're capable of doing, right? Just from a mandate in the city, you can't Mm -hmm. have people coming in. How do you guys work around that? Yeah, I mean, we transitioned at the top of March to home and mm-hmm. built studios at home. Not built studios, but, you know, got everyone their machines. Yeah, let's they just call it home. built studios. Built you know, studios, that, yeah, We built exactly. studios all over. <laughs> 
<laughs> we built studios everywhere. Everyone had their materials and we all started working from home. You know, I think my big focus for the first couple months was really, I have a lot of younger employees, uh, a lot of which is the, you know, this is their first job and they're young living in the city by themselves, a lot of them. And so I think really for the first couple of months, my main focus more so than the business was, you know, just to make sure as a leader that everybody felt okay and felt safe. And I know it's a scary time. I'm like 10, 15 years older than some of them. So I've been through a little bit more. And so that was my focus. But of course, again, as I try to look at everything positively, I I do think that there are so many things that were not working for me. I've spoken really openly about it that just were not working for me anymore. And they hadn't been for a while. And so this time is a good time for me to sort of pivot and change and also to release myself of having to do the things that, you know, I felt I had to do or we have to do in this industry. But listen, has it been challenging? Yes. Have there been absolutely beautiful days that I felt more connected to everybody than I ever have because I'm always on the go and I don't get to see the office all the time? Yes. Have there also been days that I have, if I'm being brutally honest on this podcast, that I probably felt lower than I ever have in my life, more scared than I ever have, more alone of losing my mental health, my business, my livelihood, everything that I've that I've given up so much in my life to to work towards. And also just being so far away from everyone you know. Yeah, of course, there have been those days that it's been really, really hard. But I also try to as much as I can. Uh, I also go to a lot of therapy, so much therapy. But I also try to wake up every day. And certainly right now during this time, even if I had a, have a bad night and have to have a couple glasses of wine, I try to wake up and realize that definitely during this time, there are so many people that are hurting so much so much, whether they're sick or losing jobs or just what what have you, what's going on in the world, you know, and I try to change my perspective. So that's a really long answer, but that's kind of where my mind is at. It's like, it's pretty much like being on a roller coaster. Right. Like everybody's, yeah. Right. Of course. It's definitely a lot of ups and downs, but I appreciate already the positive spin, the half full glass through which you are looking at all of these things. Right. And I think that that's, sometimes half the battle is just our own personal outlook on things. What are you missing during this? I miss the personal interaction with people. My sister is pregnant, you know, and- Is she in Texas? She's in Texas. She's in Austin. Yeah. So I'm I'm missing not being able to be with her, but also give her the attention that she gives me. So, you know, so much of my life is showing up, you know, for her and, and- showing up for me, like, you know, at the shows or things I'm doing and supporting right. me. And, and it's her time. Yeah. And it, this is her moment in her life. And, you know, and I want to be able to be there for her. So that's been hard. I would say I'm a homebody. I'm pretty introverted, even though I think a lot of people think I'm very extroverted. So I'm not really, I don't miss going out a ton because I didn't go out a ton in the first place. But I would say just just my close people, you know, I've had the same best friends my whole life. I miss being around them. I miss my sister. So, you know, that's kind of like really what I miss. Right. But everything I could, I could, I could stand to stay home a little bit longer if I'm being honest. I I kind of feel like I'm seeing you in your natural habitat, right? Like this is just like, you know, as long as you can figure out your productivity and get everything done from that. And I think that's what a lot of people are learning is that they're able to move forward as soon as we get out of this with a lot more efficiency in certain things. Yeah. And also with the confidence to be able to say no more, like you said, and, you know, and be able to do the things that work for them moving forward. Yeah. 
So beginning at the beginning, Brandon, as you know, one of the things that we love to discuss with people is that in our lives, we get to design the life that we want to lead and what is going to fit us. We get to define what success and happiness looks like to us and understand that those things will evolve over time, you know, and where Mm -hmm. we sort of place our value system. So I want to talk to you about growing up and how the story of Brandon Maxwell came to be. So where did you grow up? And what kind of life did you envision for yourself? Well, I grew up in Longview, Texas, uh, which is a town in East Texas of about, I think now probably 80,000 people. It's two hours east of Dallas, right on the border of Louisiana. And I'm the oldest of five. Mm -hmm. And I had a pretty normal growing up, I would say. My grandmother ran a clothing store called Riffs. I, okay, you just stole, (laughs) you stole my moment. Oh, are you going to say it? Okay. I, okay, because yes, I was doing a little research and I was like, could this be? Like, I wonder if there's any possibility that- That there's a relation? That I'm like related to the Riffs of Longview, Texas. I, you could be. I've got to do a test. Yeah, you've got to. It's so funny because I was thinking about that this morning. I was like, I don't- know that we've ever talked about that. No, did you um, know anything about those riffs? Like beyond? Well, yeah, because so Mrs. Rift owned it. She was quite old when and passed away when I was younger, but very, very close. I have so much video video footage of us growing up, me just constantly being on her lap. I remember she took me to meet Miss America. I was very, and this is probably lame, but I still am really into, and of course I'm a Southern gay kid. I was really into pageants. And so I just always wanted to meet Miss America. And I remember she took me to meet Miss America with her cane and her walker. And we have the picture together. And she lived in Longview. My grandmother ran the store. And my grandmother with with Mrs. Riff put on two fashion shows a year that were benefited local charities. And so I feel like I kind of grew up around fashion. And then as I got a bit older in junior high, I started to compete in photography. And I entered photography competitions and really started to learn how to be uh, a photographer, which is sort of my side passion, what I went to college for and got a degree in. And um, through that, I learned how to, you know, of course, in a small town, I had to make my own clothes and, you know, do all the hair and the makeup myself on my girlfriends and learn how to put extensions in and eyelashes on and all those kinds of things. So that's really where all my love of what I do now came from. And, you know, I, I was really lucky to have, you know, a grandmother who, and a family, but you know, my grandmother was still sells, you know, she still sold clothes out of her house until uh, three years ago. So she really had a major passion for fashion. She would always make sure I had the latest fashion magazines. So she really like encouraged me to go after this very strange career path that in my town nobody understood. You know, and most parents, of course, want you to be a doctor or a lawyer. So they were like, what are you doing? You know, what kind of fashions did they carry at riffs? Like what so, were these designer like, lines? What was the deal? It was only women's. It was designer lines. And, you know, I grew up in the 80s. So it was in, in Texas, you know, the oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, who was so every, big? Every, everything, everything was big. I don't know what the brands are. I need to ask her, but I'll talk about my grandmother in a second. It's hard for me. My grandmother has now gone into the later stages of Alzheimer's just mm-hmm. as my career has started to take off. And so it's harder for me to get some of those answers that I would have wanted to know. And I have asked her, We, I, she was in one of my advertising campaigns. She was the star of it. So we did a video about growing up in Riffs just because she was sort of entering that early phase. And I wanted to create something that I could remember forever <laughs> oh, Brandon, um, oh and, ha- and, and have some answers <laughs> for her just as my career was kind of taking off and I was achieving sort of what she had dreamed for me. Um, 
So, but I don't know what the brands were, but I do, it was like furs and pearls mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. wedding dresses and really Texan. nice shoes. Yeah, so Texas, you know? First of all, did your grandmother though, as far as her journey right now, is she fairly lucid? Is it short-term memory loss? Is it? There are moments when we FaceTime that she can know who I am. Okay. But that's pretty much it. Oh. I've actually never, I don't think I've ever talked about it before, just out of respect for her. But yeah, I mean, she she walked down uh, the runway with me at my, I think, spring 2018 show at the very end, she walked down and it was a show all about Texas and growing up. And it was really, that was a show that I think I will always look at as the, the life-changing moment for me for many different reasons. And it, it was a huge turn for the brand as well. But I, I flew her to New York and she walked down. She somewhat knew where she was backstage, mm-hmm. but I felt in my heart that as we walked down the runway together at the end that she did know where she was and that she was proud. And, you know, so that was always a moment that I'll remember that year, that period of that September show and that February show, because the February one, I walked down the runway with my mom. It was such an, that was a whole emotional family, family year. So. Right. I'm sure, I'm sure she's incredibly proud of you and that she knows all of the success that you have found, you know, and also in it being in an industry so close to what it seems like has been her passion her whole life too. Yeah. So I'm sure that's very tough for both of you guys, but, but I'm sure she does know. Yeah. I I feel in my heart, she knows for sure. Okay. So growing up in Texas and in a small town like that, did you have an idea of what having it all would look like for you? Did you want (sighs) to stay there? Did you want to move? Did you want to be a designer? Did you want to be a photographer? Oh, I don't think I wanted to be a designer. I think I, I, I really, looking back, I really think my main focus was to just get out. I don't know. Growing up, I didn't, I don't, I didn't, see myself being really anything except outside of that town. And and it's funny, I think I do this probably a lot in my life and my career now, which is like probably to project that everything's fine. And that's probably just a coping mechanism that I picked up as a kid. But my best friend, even to this day from my whole life, you know, we recently sat down and had a long conversation and she's like, I had really no idea until I started reading as in interviews that you struggled growing up. She was like, I really, you kept all of that in. I had no idea that you were bullied or had things said to you that or that you were scared or fearful. I didn't really know any of those things. And so I didn't have a, a terribly hard time in school because I had a I always had a handful of girlfriends that I'm still close to today, like very best girlfriends. I think looking back, they knew they were mm-hmm. perceptive and they built a wall around me. A lot of times we wouldn't go out on the weekend to parties because if I'm just speaking honestly, I think I felt really unsafe. I felt scared. So that was a lot of my life. It was quite insular, I would say. My mom and my dad would say I was very popular and I was very social, which I am a very social person, but that's not how it felt to me. You know, I always felt that I was sort of counting down the time to get to New York City. You know, it's like I dreamed so badly of being in New York. So you felt sort of other throughout your early life. Yeah, I mean, having it all to me, I was kind of the kid growing up that like, dreamed of being married and dreamed of being a happy, having a happy life and having all the things that everybody around me had, knowing that I probably couldn't or that that wasn't available for me. But, you know, I think in the last four or five years of living there, I just would drive around by myself for hours at night in my car and listen to music. And 
I would dream that I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to I'm going to meet a boy and I'm going to be in love and I'm going to have a career and all of these people are going to see that I made something of my life. You know, that's that's like kind of what I would, you know, because I, I and I've talked about this a lot actually, but I always was like having it all. I think was like achieving one thing that would make me memorable because my fear as a young person growing up was that at the end of my life I might just be remembered as the gay guy from town. And not that that's bad in any sort of way. I just, for myself, always felt that I, I wanted to achieve something that I could be remembered by, that I could be remembered for. I did, many years later, thank God, achieve one thing that I felt I had that turning point in my life where I was like, okay, I think I'm there. I will be remembered as something other than, than the gay boy from town. Yeah, I wanted to, like, I always, maybe this is morbid, but I always thought, like, what will they write in the newspaper mm -hmm. when I die? And and I wanted there to be something, you know? And and I think, like, I wanted that for my parents. I wanted that for my, you know, I'm, let me just preface all of this by saying I'm very, very, very proud to be gay. Were you out in high school? Towards the end of high school, yeah. I always a little bit felt like it was understood. Understood within your family? Did you guys have that conversation or do you feel like there was just a knowing? Well, I think like when you're my mom and my dad and when I get home from school and I watch Wizard of Oz three times in a row and you can't find me and you come into my mom's closet and I'm standing in her red heels clicking them together. Like, a I think you probably things, know. Yeah, add up at that point. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, my mom, my mom said she probably knew like right before I went into kindergarten, she was 100% mm -hmm. positive. And so, you know, my mom said she just always, always, always knew. And my dad said he always knew. And I remember telling my grandmother, I remember sitting down and saying, okay, Memma, um, I just want you to know I'm, I'm probably not going to get married. And she looked at me and she said, oh, honey, of course you're going to get married, just not to a woman. Oh. And I was like, wow, well, I guess everybody did know. My work here is done. Yeah, we're finished. All right, thank you. Like, I think I told my mom in a Starbucks line while I was getting a Frappuccino while wearing a juicy tracksuit and Uggs or something, you know, Casual. in like 2003. Casual, yeah. So I, you know, I think it was not, it wasn't a huge thing. That's not to say I didn't struggle in a big way. I did, but you know, my family was very accepting and I'm very, very grateful for that. I know that that's so much more than, than so many people have. And I don't take that for granted at all. No, of course. All right. So you leave, you go to college, but you're at that point studying photography. Mm -hmm. And then how do you get to New York? I know you start styling for a while. I don't want to rush through things, but I'm curious mm -hmm. as to for someone who didn't think he was going to be a designer, how you transition from doing what you were doing to not even to going to work for a house, you design in and launch your own line. Yeah. I moved to New York right out of high school. I failed out of school. This is the really, this is the Cliff's Notes version. You fail out of university. Yeah. Um, two years in because I discovered going out. Okay. And my parents made me move home. I moved home to, to Austin, Texas um, and went to school in Austin. The greatest experience of my life. I ended college on the Dean's List. I met Jesse, who I'm still with today. And we began like a partnership of photographing together. So we were like a team. He moved to New York when school was over a little earlier than me, I came later. We lived in a closet together. I sold my car. I had literally down to, I had a Ziploc bag of quarters left. So this was around the time, this was 2008. This was mm -hmm. when Rachel was like having a really big moment, right? And 
because for all of the years, I think Rachel's every day is a big moment, but this was when she was on every TV station, every she was dressing every celebrity in the world. You just couldn't pick up on Us Weekly without seeing Rachel. We're talking about Rachel Zoe, yes. Yes, one of my favorite people on planet Earth. One of our guests. Oh, nice, okay. Rachel's one of my favorite people and someone who I try to say in every interview was just a massive inspiration for me. And I'm so blessed to say that when I started my career and would see her at events, she was one of the only people that would go out of her way to make me feel comfortable in a room. I've never forgotten that. Rachel is wildly kind too. Yes. You know what I mean? I think that there's always this perception, especially in fashion, and we'll get to that later, but you know, she's so fabulous, but she's actually like a very kind woman. Mm-hmm. Beginning of pandemic, I have to just be transparent and saying one of the only people I heard from at the very beginning was Rachel, like a text saying like, hey, hope you're hanging in. Yes, she's one of the kindest people. So this was her, like, Rachel's Zomania during this time, right? So I was like, okay, well, I've been making clothes for photo shoots, and I've been dressing my friends for photo shoots. Like, I think I could do that job, probably. Like, I, I'm not mathematically probably smart enough to be a photo assistant, and that's sort of a straight guy's sport, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Lifting the equipment and doing all that. So, like, I think I could be a stylist assistant, though. So I moved. Jesse and I were down to a bag of quarters living in New York. And Jesse is doing more sort of photo work at this time, right? Yeah. Jesse was working at the very early stages of Milk Studios. He was in digital. He was, you know, in the very early times when Milk was, was first starting. So he was working in photo. I was looking for a job as a stylist assistant, you know, back in the day, pre-Instagram, pre-any of that, you still had to like email a resume. And so I was emailing and mailing resumes everywhere. And one day on my flip phone, I find mm-hmm. I got a call from Deborah Afshani, who's a stylist, a wonderful stylist and started my career. She asked me to come and intern. A week later, she hired me. And that's how my job started. So, you know, I assisted for many years. I assisted Deborah. Then I assisted Edward Innenfull, who's now the editor of British Vogue. And then I assisted Nicola Formichetti. And I was his assistant for maybe three and a half years. That's how I met Gaga when he first started working with her. We became best friends. You know, we were roughly the same age. I was traveling all around the world. I got a passport. You were doing her creative direction as well at the time, a little bit, right? Yeah, creative direction, styling, you know, kind of all of it. I mean, not all of it, but, you know, you just kind of a whole group is getting in there doing everything as a family. And this is really early days Gaga, too. Like, this is like she's coming onto the scene. This is Mm -hmm. the period of time where it's like, who is this person? I remember Mm -hmm. distinctly seeing her first video and just being like, who? Wait, what? Who is it? You know, I'd never heard of her. And she kind of busted onto the scene in these big glasses and the whole look. Yeah, this was back. I mean, this was like back when I was a runner. So that should tell you anything, Sarah. Like back, I mean, that's how long ago it was. A physical runner. I was like, I had my iPod. I got her like CD from Target. They were having Mm -hmm. a $5 sale. And I downloaded it onto my iPod. And I was like, oh, I kind of like this music. And and she was, yeah, it was was sort of at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, Nicola, who I worked with uh, and still works with Gaga, and we're all still family and friends, he became the creative director of Mugler. So much was happening. And so I started to do Gaga more. uh, And then I went off on my own. And Nicola helped set me up to go become my own stylist. And you know, through those years of really working with Gaga and, you know, doing covers and advertisements, you know, all my friends would say, you know, you always work with all these designers to make all these dresses, but you're always sketching everything. Why don't you just do it yourself? And I always thought, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I guess I'd never thought about it really. And I do remember finally a couple of years in, I thought, well, 
maybe I'll just try one collection and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. I'll just give it a shot. I was so naive. I knew nothing. And I set my friends down. I was like, I think I'm going to do it. And everybody was like, duh. Okay, go for it. So, you know, it's kind of how it happened. And when I like try to talk to students about it and they're like, what was your plan? I'm like, I don't, I need to come up with a better answer because the truth is I didn't have, I mean, I just didn't have one. I didn't plan to sell clothes or anything. No, I think that that's also important to share. And I think that everybody's success story is different. And, you know, we talk about that too, in terms of like, are you more fluid? Are you really regimented in terms of determining goalposts and kind of making, you know, five-year plan and, and mapping everything out? And the majority of people I find it's a lot more organic how things sort of unfold than the people who have it all dreamed up. And it's like the Venn diagram, you know, where is it a Venn diagram, by the way, when I say that? I have no idea what a Venn diagram is. So you're talking to the wrong It's like the Instagram post, you know, where they have, it's like here and then success, you know, and it's like, you think that there's that straight line and it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. all through this going back one, one stage though. So you're at this point in your early twenties. Yeah, I was probably 23, 24. Okay, so, but this young guy from, like you said, a small town, all of a sudden, I'm sure you're traveling with her all over the place, right? And oh, this can you is imagine? Like, I never I, even had I a passport. I can't imagine. That's why I'm wondering, no. what is the, what was that like for you too? Because she's coming up, you're coming up. It's got to be obviously such a fun time for both of you, but such a weird world to, oh. to be a part of. I was just saying to my other best friend, who's actually her manager, we were just, he sent me an old picture the other day of like, just me like in a bathroom, like hanging stuff, like in a, in a hotel bathroom, hanging stuff in the shower curtain, like dresses getting ready. And I was like so young and thin and I had all my hair. And I was thinking about like all of the things, you know, I had never even had a passport. I'd never been out of the country. I had never traveled anywhere. You know, yes, I met someone who was roughly my same age. I would think if you know us, we're pretty much girl and boy version of each other. We were like siblings. And my career was happening. Hers was happening. You know, we were going through wild and crazy things together. I mean, I'm I'm like, you know, one day meeting Oprah. Next day I'm sitting with her at the Oscars. The next day we're like meeting the prince in England, like, then you're traveling to Tokyo, then you're in LA and you're all over the world. And it's sort of like, and then you're walking with her out the door and there's 3000 people with cameras. And you're like, I was just exposed to a world that was so far from the world that I knew, seeing all of the things that I had, I had only ever really dreamed about or seen in movies or, you know, at the checkout counter at the grocery store, seen in magazines. The wonderful thing I look back on it now is that if you're lucky and my, my biggest fear of moving to New York truly was I'll never find another girlfriend like the best friends that I had here. And that will be really hard for me. Of course, I'll have them always. But right. you know, I won't have someone here. And when I met her, I was like, okay, this is like my girlfriends, you know, mm-hmm. and we, we became so close. And so I think it was wonderful to have somebody to experience the world with who also deeply loved me and deeply cared if I was happy, someone who was not obsessed with success and fame, although she had it in spades, was somebody who was not driven by money, who really cared about creativity, who cared about how I felt. So, you know, I only think I was able to go into my next step of my life because I had also, I just think the universe prepared me so well for what came next because I also was with one of my best friends, watching her on the rise, watching how she handled that, 
watching what she went through, successes and failures, watching all of those things. And I had a great example of how to keep my life relatively normal when my own life changed, albeit in a much, much smaller way, way smaller. Was there like 3,000 paparazzi coming when you came out on the runway that time? (laughs) There was only like four. (laughs) Uh But you know what? You're like, I'm prepared for this, guys. I have been through this. I have been through this. You know, but I think, listen, there are things when your life changes that affect all the things in your orbit. And Mm -hmm. it's not just the things of like people knowing who you are or watching what you're doing. There's real, real emotional intricacies that are hard. And I'm really grateful to have had a a wonderful example who handled everything with such grace and poise behind the scenes that I can't even tell you. And so, you know, yeah, it was just the craziest time though. I mean, going to all these places that like, I was just like, you know, and I think it's prepared me to understand the world more now because I, I know I've seen more things. And also in a full circle moment, she was there to celebrate you, obviously, when you launched your line in 2015. What was that like, though, as far as your first show? I know that you've been really candid with how nervous you get before presentations of any sort. So I can't even imagine when it was the very first one. So what was that experience? New York Times and Women's Wear Daily printed it about, I would say, probably about a solid two months before the collection came out. Because I had had a career where people kind of knew what my job was. And so because they attached celebrity names to it in the press, it got so much pickup that it almost for a couple of weeks really paralyzed me. I remember being in the car with my mom when it was in Women's Wear Daily for the first time. And it, I had said it in a casual conversation. You had said what in a casual conversation? That I'm, go- that I'm going to launch my collection. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was working on it silently behind the scenes. I remember crying hysterically to my mom, being like, the whole world's going to laugh at me. I'm going to fail. Like, I'm going to, now I'm, you know, everyone's going to see what a fraud I am, all these things. But in a way, as I got closer, it was like fire for me. It felt like, okay, I have to perform. I have to go out and do my best. I have to rise up, you know? And looking back, it was such a sweet moment. All my friends and family were there. Gaga was driving in her car all day long, trying to pick up extra shoes. My best friend from home was like trying to make the seats perfect at the show. My dad was there welcoming guests. You know what I mean? It was, it was just so actually charming looking back at it now that it's become a fiasco. And this was um, at Mr. Chow, right? This was at Mr. Chow. It was like 125 people, so tiny. I had a team of three people. I had not planned to sell anything. And it happened. And I walked out to like really, truly so many different cameras because there was a lot of people there that were way more well-known. And I felt in that instant, my life change. And I've had, I have a couple girlfriends that, talk about that moment a lot they felt that they felt a shift in that moment too and yeah I just it just felt like I didn't know what I was signing up for but in that moment I was like buckled in and on the ride and then we had a little after party at Mr. Chow and around 11 30 I was outside having a glass of wine in the back and my publicist came and she was like hey Linda Fargo is here this is like three or four hours after the Mm -hmm. show I'm like I've had many glasses of wine I'm like what shut up. And she's like, no, she's really, truly here. If you could put the wine down and like act like a normal person, that would be And Linda Fargo is the buyer for... Bergdorf Goodman. Bergdorf Goodman at the time. You know, that's a place that on your bucket list, you're hoping to be in 10 years if you launch a a brand. Right. Like we're not just doing this at Riffs anymore, people. No, exactly. So I walk out, she's talking to my dad, who if you've ever met my dad is like so Southern. And, you know, I was like, oh God, what's going on? 
And she's like, I'd like to come see you tomorrow. And she came in the next morning with her whole team and they were the very first person to buy the brand. And it was a life-changing moment for me. Now, backstory, I had no way of making those clothes. I had no idea where I was going to produce them, what I was going to do, you know, but they, they bought the whole collection and we were off to the races. That's a really long, but that's that. No, and that, but that's also incredible because you showed it without the anticipation necessarily of it really going anywhere, right? For you, it was like this creative exercise. I'm sure your hope was that people were going to pick up the line or no. I don't know if I planned to sell clothes so much as like I was trying to just participate in an exercise to learn to believe in myself or to learn to like myself or to learn to, you know, that's really looking back now that I'm a few years away from it. Like, I don't know that I ever planned to sell clothes truly, which is probably not a very good thing to say. And like everybody on my team would be like, don't say that. But again, like when I talk to students at school, it's like, if I'm being totally truthful to you, I think I was like, you know what, I'm 30 years old. I'm losing something else in my life. You know what I was going through in that time. And I need to go out and do something different. Take a, do make a change, you know? And You're taking a risk. Yes, whatever. I don't know. I mean, I need to look, probably look into that deeper in therapy, but no, I don't, I didn't build some big business plan that I was going to go and sell clothes everywhere. Brandon, when you said that you had sort of said in passing, you know, I'm working on a collection or I'm working on a line and then you felt the pressure when all of a sudden it wasn't like you as a creative doing this, but it was like, oh, this person who's associated with all of these names, right? And has done X, Y, and Z. And so now it's this highly anticipated thing. As far as time went, had you always planned to present at that fashion week? Or was that the sort of thing where all of a sudden you had to like get your ass in gear and you were like, well, I guess I'm making this a real thing. I had planned in my mind, Mm -hmm. but again, I was leaving it open. Like I really, at that time, that was the only time in my career, my fashion career that I've had time on my side. I had time to just figure out what I was doing, what I liked. So, you know, I was not married to showing during that time, but of course I did sit down and do like a first interview. So I did plan to say it. I was, I didn't plan for it to come out as early as it came out, but I remember it was Jessica Iredell from Women's Wear Daily. And I remember, I'm sure you know, and she laughs, she like makes fun of me about it all the time now when she sees me because I had a really full-blown panic attack. Like I called her at her office. My publicist was like, how could you do this? I'm like, you're not supposed to do this. I was like, not because she printed it, because I wasn't ready for it to come out. Like, right. so I, after I did the interview, I would call her and be like, you know what? I don't think I should have done that. I actually regret it. Like, maybe we should take it back. And, you know, you're not supposed to call a journalist and do that. That's like so not professional. And that's actually borderline, like wild. Right. This is not the Longview Gazette. Okay. No, exactly. <laughs> this is like, my publicist was like, you're going to call the desk of Women's Wear Daily. I was like, I absolutely am. Mm-hmm. And Jessica was like, that's not how journalism works, honey. But thank you so much for the courtesy call. It'll be printed next week. And I was like, okay, wow. great. Here we go. Wow. Okay. Well, so first of all, you know, being creative and running a business can often feel like total dichotomies, right? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden there you are, you've had this successful show. Linda Fargo is there. They pick up the line. How now, Brandon, as someone who's mm-hmm. just sort of like going with the flow, you haven't gone to business school. Like you said, you don't have a business plan, no. right? So working on draping the clothing and having the creative concept is so different than, mm-hmm. okay, this is how much it's going to cost. This is how I'm going to price the pieces. So how did you deal with that? Well, a lot of wine. You know, I would say that right after it happened, 
it felt like a snowball effect. You're in vogue, you're on the internet, you're winning a CFTA award, you're traveling the world, the other stores are buying you. I mean, really short amount of time. I mean, it was so much so fast. You know, between September and February, between the spring and fall shows, you have no time. Once you take out Christmas and Thanksgiving, if you're not already working on a fall collection at the end of the summer, you're late. That's not, you're late. You're really late. And so not only was I putting together a business, I was trying to get production and build and figure out what production even was. I was dealing with all the press commitments and things I had to do. And I had to do a follow up collection, which now people were waiting for. And so, yeah, my dad came in. I had saved money over almost a 10-year period. I had saved $200,000. And that's because over the time that I was a stylist, stylist assistant, I saved every dollar. And when you're traveling like 360 Right, you have a per a diem. Yeah, you have per diem. Your people pay for your flights. The client you're does. You're they, traveling you have, with Gaga. You're not picking up the check. Yeah, You're like, you go into concerts where she's performing and they have catering in the back. You're not spending your money on food and stuff. So I was able really over like a 10 year period to save a nest egg. And I thought in my mind, this will last me for years. Mm-hmm. It lasted me for six weeks. Because, you know, <laughs> when, when someone, you know, when someone buys production, you got to pay for the production up front, which I didn't know. And so I called my dad bless him. And I was like, Hey, I need some money. And I also need you to run the business. And I understand that you have other things going on in your life, but I'm going to need you to do this like ASAP yesterday. Yeah. And he did like, he really, truly did. Like my Southern dad, my truly like he showed up and showed out still to this day and wrangling me is a full-time job. And so my, my spending is well, at that time. Was offensive? I didn't understand budget. You know right. what I mean? I didn't right. really know what it, which creative. is why I blew. Right. You're creative. Brandon, so, you know, you talked about that time in your life where you came out, you know, on the runway and it was almost like you have that distinct notion of life changing. And then you're talking about everything from a CFDA award to being in vogue, all the things that I'm sure growing up seemed beyond out of reach, right? Yeah. Do you feel that because you also mentioned the pace and the pressure, do you feel that you were able to enjoy that time? No. The the simple answer is no. I actually saw you in Hawaii, I think, Mm -hmm. around a time that I was taking a break from it all. And we had gone there to get some clarity for me because I felt like I had started to really lose my way. I really was coping in very unhealthy ways. I felt that I was working more to please other people and to meet the expectations for other people than I was for myself. I felt that I was collapsing under the pressure of having to be the next this, the next Tom Ford or the next whatever they, Ralph Lauren, whatever they say you are that week. And again, this is all ridiculous. I know I sound ridiculous saying this Dude. because I feel really blessed to have all of this. And, and I'm, I've had so much more than, than people could ever dream of. And so I don't want to seem ungrateful in any sort of way. But I also want to be realistic for any like young person that's listening that like what you see on Instagram is not reality, you know, and there's real pressures. Right. Well, not only that, right. But it's like we put certain successes on such a pedestal and we put happiness around the corner and commensurate with certain achievements. And I Mm -hmm. love speaking with people who can be honest about sometimes it's almost like the pursuit of those things is more enjoyable than when you achieve some of those things. Because like you said, then comes in all the new set of pressures and it sucks out a lot of the fun obviously you still are designing. You, like I said, have been really 
upfront about how nervous you get before shows and how debilitating that process can be? Has that with the confidence of mm. having a few seasons under your belt dissipated at all? Or is that something you still feel? So I wouldn't say that it's confidence that's come from doing it more. What I would say is that I had along the way, and I'm happy to say what they are, some pretty, with any sort of quote unquote success also comes massive criticism in private and public and failures. And I had a string of quite a few that I felt almost broke me. The financial pressure is one thing. And then also that pressure of feeling like any failure that you're going to have, even if it's on a very small level, will be in public is, can be really paralyzing. And I was always scared of failing. And when I did fail in some pretty big ways, I did a really, I think, smart thing in retrospect, which is that I took time away. I said, you know, to my whole team, I was like, hey, I, I need a second. Like all around, this is not going well. And to the world, it looks like it's going well, but you know, and, and maybe one day I'll tell the truth of it, but this is not good. And so I took time away and I went away with Jesse and I remember this, the, the place we went and I was devastated. I remember truly for like seven days after a huge failure, I think I cried truly for seven days in a row. And it was such a loss for me. And I looked at him and I will never forget we're sitting there and he looked at me and he was like, if you want to run away from all of this tomorrow, I love you. Your family loves you. Your person is not dependent on your job. If you are successful, we don't love you more. If you choose that you don't want it anymore, we don't love you less. Like, we love you in this home for who you are. And for some reason, I've always tried to do more in my life because I felt that would make me more valuable as a person. It's probably just from growing up how I grew up. But for some reason, that moment of being so vulnerable, I really absorbed that message. And I feel like I started leaning more after that into the safety of my home and my relationship and the people around me and, and driving my self-worth from my own personal life and my own small world. And once I started to do that, once I started to think like having another CFDA award sitting next to my bed and having bookends when I'm, you know, roll over in the morning, he doesn't love me more. It's just something that sits there or being at another store is not gonna make him think I'm more valuable or be more valuable to my sister or my mom or my best friend who doesn't know anything about my job or care. But what about to yourself? To me, I felt like once I started to really put more value into what kind of person I am in my real life, things started to change. And so that's when that show happened, that big Texas show in 2018 was like, I had a failure of a show right before that, a, a failure. A failure, although it was my highest selling show of all time, that show, for me, it was a failure because I can see darkness all over it. I can see the darkness of where I was in my life. And there's the eyes were dark, the clothes were short and ripped, and it was just too much. And then I, I took time away. I moved back to Texas for a couple months. I prepared a show there. I came back and I had this quiet time. I pulled away from everything. I said, I don't want to do anything. I want to do nothing. Came back, I do this show that is so opposite of what I had done before. It was colorful, big hair. Everything is like not the strict black and white that I was known for doing. Everybody was sitting in the back of pickup trucks, eating cheeseburgers, drinking beer. I'm playing Dolly Parton as the music. Like all the things that I would have been scared to do in front of the fashion industry because they would be like, "Ugh, he's like a cheesy, cheap boy from Texas. He's not serious and cool and chic and whatever. I was scared to do that. You know, the reality is I was playing a role before to try to fit in. And when I went out there and I was totally myself, 
that was a show that just changed my fucking life, I have to tell you. It changed the way that I looked at myself. It changed the way I felt about myself. It changed the people around me. It was a breakthrough moment for me because I felt like this is the first time in my life where I am who the fuck I am, you know? And can I cuss on this podcast? Sorry. Cuss away. So yeah, so that was it. That was the moment. And I think once that changed... I'm not as nervous anymore in a 15 minute answer. I'm just not as nervous anymore. Now I'm like, I don't read reviews anymore. Like after the show when my publicist is like looking at them, I'm like, have a nice night. See you later. I don't care. I want to go home and see what my best friend thinks about it. You're your worst review. If you know that you sucked, if you know that you did a bad job, there cannot be a worse review than that. Doesn't matter. You're on the cover of New York Times. It doesn't matter. Right. Although there must have been, like you said, a tremendous sense of freedom, right? Of just stepping into being who you were and letting the chips fall where they may in terms of no longer trying to act according to how you thought that you were supposed to be acting. But also you said that you were in a really dark period and had that dark show, which was maybe critically slammed, but your best performing collection, right? So then what goes on with that? Because that's such a mind fuck too. Well, that's kind of everything, isn't it, Sarah? You realize like we're out here dancing for everyone that ultimately like- None of it matters. Right. I think that's where we get lost in this industry is we're out here trying to please a bunch of people who are not the people that you need to worry about pleasing. The people Mm -hmm. you need to worry about pleasing in your own life is the people in your own life, but then as a brand, is your customer, is the most important thing. So I spent the first few years, as people do, so concerned with what everybody in fashion thought about me. And what I realized is like, when you go through a really tough moment, and and it wasn't just the show, it was a lot of things that were happening in my life at that time, compounded. You know, I'm so scared of, you know, at that time, every article was like, he's he's the next Tom Ford, he's the next whatever, he's this, that, and the other. And you're like, oh God, I don't want to mess this up. I don't want to mess it up. But when you fail kind of so badly in front of people, you know, and it's a critical failure, there is some sort of release in that, you know what I mean? To be like, oh my God, I've been thinking this was going to be so much worse than it was. And maybe those people don't like me as much anymore, or I'm not as popular this season, but ultimately like I I do have happiness in my life and that's more than a lot of people have. And that was a turning point for me too. I look back and it was such a high selling season, like better than anything else. And I just thought like, why do I care so much? Like what these people who like wouldn't show up like for me in the slightest think about me. Do you know what I mean? I mean, of course I'm a people pleaser and I want people to like me. That's gotten much less severe as I've gotten older, but, but you're totally right. It's like, I think, you know, we worry so much like what other people think about us and it just trips us up from becoming who we're supposed to be. Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, there's a couple things. Number one, you know, as far as critics go, it's like Jay-Z always says, it's like, a critic can tell you a million different things. They've never been in your shoes. They've never done that. And I like to then quote Brene Brown, who basically says, unless you're actually in the ring, I'm not interested in your opinion. You know, like if you're out there, you're the one that is singing for your supper. Like you don't need to hear Mm -hmm. from other people. And like you said, it really, for you, it comes down to your own personal small community of your family and your loved ones, and then your customer. And if your customer is pleased with what's happening, then who gives a shit about anything else, you know? Yeah. Because you've had the highs and you can only do that. Listen, I'm going to quote Jay-Z again, but he says, <laughs> would you want to be Bobby then if you had to be Bobby now? You know, it's like everybody's going to have their moment in the sun, right? And then mm-hmm. someone seems like, I think the pressure where you feel like so much more of a failure is in contrast to this 
bright shining moment that you felt like you had at one time versus people who never even really go for theirs. And Mm -hmm. they just have a safe kind of happy, more quiet existence. And it's like you, Mm -hmm. you busted onto the scene, you had this huge outpouring of success. And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, only from that mountaintop, did you feel the like, oh, the mm-hmm. crash, you know, which you yeah. would have been living back in your closet with Jesse. You could have been happy with your bag of quarters. And instead you had to raise the stakes. Yeah. And I'm seeing a little bit of that too during this time right now. I think a lot of people are seeing that like when everything, you know, goes away and you're risk losing it, all you have is what's around you. And I think it's in these moments, like the moments of loss and failure you know, I'm not someone who ever pops a bottle of champagne, even in the biggest moments. I'm not someone who sits and celebrates things. That's something I work on personally for myself. But in the darkness, I'm able to reflect on some of the light and appreciate some of the light. And I think that not all darkness is bad. I'm grateful. I've, I've written a lot about this on my like long Instagram post, but like when people are like, what is the thing that you're proudest of? I'm like, I'm proudest of my failures. Mm-hmm. I'm proudest of the things that almost broke me. I'm proud that when I felt like I couldn't, I found a fire inside myself and got back up again. And that that is where you find your strength. You do not find your strength in awards or good reviews or sales. You do not find your strength in those moments, I'm here to tell you. Like maybe other people do. I don't personally find that that has built my character, my strength, my power. And I don't think it's built any of those things. It's in the moments that you you risk losing it all and you fail that you really, you really find yourself. I love that. But also, do you find, you know, prior to that, do you take victories at all? Or, Mm-mm. you know, it sounds like now only through retrospect, are you able to look back and kind of enjoy some of those achievements. No. Do you think coming out of this, you will look at things differently? Yes. If there's a, you know, pending a return to normal. Yeah. Now I really used to get just in terms of fashion, I used to really, really bother me when you would go into New York fashion week and there would be all these articles. It's like, does it matter? Is it relevant? Mm -hmm. I'm like, (laughs) okay. I'm like, well, maybe not to you, but maybe to the people who took a bus here for two hours to sew this dress to pay for their family and the, and the people that are in here working all day long, every single day, the most, some of the most talented people in the world in New York City, like resilient, strong people. Yes, it does matter. Anything that, is, that makes people feel good about themselves, that makes them feel better, gives them joy, gives them inspiration, is fundamentally a good thing, right? And again, I'm confused for your publication or whatever it is, how you feel that that's going to benefit you by, you know, trashing the thing that ultimately like gives you a job, but that is another thing. But I think, you know, that used to really, really bother me. And I feel like now we see what we had, Sarah, like Mm -hmm. now you see, Mm -hmm. you see like what a joy it was for us to gather in a room with people and see beautiful things and eat food and drink alcohol and listen to music and go out after and be together. To me, fashion has never been about the clothes. Like, I, I mean, again, I know I make clothes and that's my job. For me, it is like such a vessel and like a connector to be with people. I grew up in a store. I used to like, I would see women walk out of the dressing room when I was young. I can smell the wood of the dressing room. And you would see a woman walk out and you would know she felt good about herself. And she may be going through the worst thing ever. And for that moment, she felt 
great. It's that transformative effect. Oh my God. It's intoxicating. It's a drug I've been chasing my whole life. You know, it's like my favorite image as a kid was like Princess Diana walking in that black dress. You know what I mean? And you know, she was just like, watch me go. Wait, the off the off the shoulder? Yeah. Yeah. That was the revenge dress. The revenge dress, you know, and as a young kid, I remember like seeing that and understanding in my own way what that was about. You know what I mean? To me, it's powerful. And that's trailing off, but like, it's so much more than the clothes, right? And it's so much more than just the business. It's it's community, it's togetherness, it's feeling good, it's creativity, it's beauty. And in this darkness and this sadness, don't we need beauty and light? And that's my feeling on it. So yes, I feel that we're all, me personally, looking back at so many things thinking really how good we had it. Of course, although at the time you were probably so jaded. Yeah, and how sweet it will taste again if it if we're lucky enough to have it ever again. Although I don't think it will be in the same way, but you know, I'll I'll take anything at this point. Right. I can't wait to return to like a hot sweaty dance floor full of strangers. Normalcy. Exactly. I want to give a special thanks to our partner Monkey 47 Gin the gin with an international cult following among bartenders and connoisseurs alike. It took one of the most in-demand brands in the world's top cocktail bars to finally give Rosé the day off it deserved at my house. Monkey 47 is known for its unique and eccentric recipe using, you guessed it, 47 botanicals, more than any other gin. My go-to drink recently has been a Negroni, and Monkey 47's notes of lavender, grapefruit, lemon and mint bring me that much closer to my destiny of sipping them along the Italian coast rather than in my own backyard wearing my sweatpants. We are so excited to partner with Monkey 47 for a fresh take on our favorite cocktails. Please drink responsibly and now back to having it all in other lives. I want to tell you that I find your Instagram to be such a like warm and welcoming place, which really feels counterintuitive. I think so many of us have a complicated relationship with social media, right? And obviously uh-huh. it's a great tool for you to promote the line. But I wonder as far as some of the other effects of social media and compare culture, are you impervious to that? Or do you have to keep your blinders on? Or do you fall victim to that sometimes too? I think everybody falls victim to that. I think for me personally, I go into social media kind of knowing what I want to achieve there and then sort of leaving it after that for what it is. I think I look a lot because I'm, if I'm bored. Yeah. But I I think I've seen enough behind the scenes to kind of know what is and is not true. And I think as someone who's traveled and been in different spaces, like a lot of the things, I've actually seen a lot of these people too. So I'm like, That doesn't really look like that, but... You're like, fake news, fake news. Yeah, exactly, fake news. (laughs) Listen, I don't really feel like I'm, you know, a major topic of conversation, but should some young person see my work somewhere and come to look at what I'm doing, I want there to be a place there, a voice there, that they can see somebody like me who's 220 pounds, losing their hair, some days has a double chin, is also working really hard. Not today, by the way. Not today, but always like still working hard towards something like who believes in work ethic and like, you know, to the best of your ability, treating people well. I think that like, I want them to see that if someone like myself can come from where I came from, albeit with a lot of help and I think a lot of good luck, I do think they can do it too. 
And so I want to be really honest about what the experience of this is. And again, it's not as big of an experience as everybody else, but it has baggage that comes with it. And I don't want everyone to think that this life that they see me dressing people for the Oscars and going here and being in this magazine and here's the supermodels in the runway show and isn't it great? No, while you're sitting in your garage at home or your downstairs basement and you're sewing a dress, like I feel the same things that you feel. And I worry about the same things probably that you worry about. I just like the same things about myself. Like my life is not living on cloud nine and most of the people that you're wanting to be like are not either, you know? Right. And, and so that's what it is for me is just to like shed the truth. I mean, I don't know. I've gotten in trouble on there a few you're times. You're like Fiona I Apple like, at the Grammys, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, this, this world is bullshit. Well, you've been really open about your experiences, obviously, you know, as far as on your social media, sharing your experiences about coming out, about going through breast cancer with your mom. And first of all, how is your mom's health now? And I wanted as a quick PSA, because I read this and obviously you Mm. are better to speak on this being that, you know, she's your mom and you know about this more than I do, but Your mom had been really staying current about her Mm -hmm. mammograms and everything. And I say this only because we're going on month nine of being Mm -hmm. in this pandemic. And a lot of people are not going to their normal checkups and putting things off. And it sounds like your mom had, you know, postponed her mammogram Mm -hmm. at this point. And you guys were so lucky, right? Brandon, mm-hmm. you talk, you tell it. I, I don't know your mom or the no. story, but no, 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 you're totally right. This is a PSA. People need to check on their health. Totally. And and actually my mom's name is Pam Woolley and people can look her up if you want, because she actually just did an interview about this on the Today Show, her experience with breast cancer. But my mom was religious about mammograms. And, you know, my mom shares a lot like me and she always, I just remember my whole life, her talking to my sisters about it. We have to get our mammograms, you know, or, you know, just always preparing them. And she never missed getting a mammogram. And the year that she got breast cancer, which last year, she was moving houses. Both of my sisters got married. This is all happening during like a couple months period. And she just thought, you know what, I'll just do it next year. She found while they were getting ready for my sister's wedding, like something strange in her breast that was not a lump, but like a color discoloration. Mm -hmm. And my older sister said, you know, I really think we should go to the doctor and see. And she went and but she had put it off for like quite a few months. And so she went in on a whim when that popped up. And the doctor said, we're not going to wait for the test. We're like, we're positive that you have breast cancer. And I I was filming the TV show. She called me and she was just like an absolute mom, you know, who's just like, I think moms are the hardest working people in in the world. My mom is very strong. And so she called me very matter of fact. And she said, hey, I don't know for sure. Like she's at the grocery store. She's like, I probably have breast cancer. I was like, what? And she's like, I, I probably do. You know, I'm, I'll call you back and let you know. But knowing my mom, I knew that she knew that mm-hmm. she did and she felt it. And uh, anyways, as it turns out, she did. And uh, the doctor said, so this is just, a, again, a very long thing, but just for everyone to know, we had very few options at that point because he was like, hey, we're, we're really pushing it. You've waited. Maybe it wasn't a couple months. It was quite a while, probably. Mm-hmm. You've waited enough that we have to act like in the next three or four days, like we got to make a decision. A decision for what? This is a mastectomy? Yeah. Are you going to have a mastectomy? Are you going to have a removal? Are you going to go straight into, you know, whatever the treatment is? Like Mm -hmm. we, it was really very quick. I think 
we found out and I was on the plane like the next morning, like 6 a.m. or something. And she was in the hospital within 36 hours, probably. Uh, we had to act really, really fast. And, you know, the doctor had said to us, if, you, if, if this had gone any longer, we'd be in a very bad place right now. And you're very lucky that this popped up. And, you know, and I think the reason why I put it on social and stuff is just because I think if early detection is very, very important and it's, it made all the difference for us. It made a huge difference. And we are so grateful to have had wonderful people that took care of her. And we were grateful that she had great insurance. We were grateful that she had wonderful access so many people don't have that. And I think that early detection is the most important. And if you can, just as a side note, um, there are many ways for people that are listening to also donate for resources and education because these things are hard and challenging. And, and if any woman who doesn't have the tools that she needs can be detected, or if it can be detected early and she can get extra help, I just think it's wonderful. Right. And that's also one of the the critical things that was going on with Planned Parenthood too, right? Was that they actually perform mammograms for people, a lot of whom don't have insurance. And so them shutting those down, mm -hmm. Whew, but that's a whole nother segment. That is people actually don't talk about, I, or I haven't heard a ton, cancer is expensive. Yeah, I, I, I'm cancer sure. Cancer is expensive. Brennan, you shared a really touching message about celebrating your birthday this year in quarantine. And you yeah. said that this year that for the celebration that you shifted from obsessing about the markers that you had put on yourself for mm. where you wanted to be by a certain age and where you yeah. might have felt previously let down or disappointed. And instead of that, focusing rather on gratitude for where you were, for what you mm -hmm. have experienced and accomplished. And I'm curious, at 36, where did you want to be that you're not? Oh, gosh. I try to keep it light here. <laughs> <laughs> so what I would normally do on my birthday is I would be, a, and, and I'm someone who has in my life, I always have since I was a young person, been like, okay, by the time I'm 21, I need to have this. Mm -hmm. I'm a Virgo. Everything has to be planned. Everything, I have to know what's going on. So I always felt like by 35, which I turned 36 this year, that I would have had a very successful career, that I would have Check. a home. Check. I mean, it's debatable, but I would have, you know, I, I thought by 36, mm -hmm. I would have a I would have a child. That was a really big one for me. I come from divorced parents and because also my adult work life has been very transient, I'm always going from one thing to the next. And I always went from one house to the next. Like I never had a, again, I had two very lovely homes with my parents. But you so wanna I'm, feel I don't want to settled. Yeah, I never had like a one settled space that was mine that mm -hmm. I felt like, you know, so those are the types of things that like I thought I would have. I still rent my apartment. <laughs> I should, you know, I should probably buy a home or do things. But I thought I would be in a place in my life where I would be ready to do that. To buy an apartment or to feel settled? Because you can buy the home, but to feel to settle and feel that internally and emotionally is quite a different thing than being able to afford it, right? Yeah, I'm not ready. And I so I felt like there would come this time in my life where I would be so content and I'm good and I want to just have a home and have a baby and it's all going to stop working and it's all going to be good. But that's not how life works. I think I still I'm always going to want to achieve more things for myself, whether that's for my career or just in my life. But I think I thought by 36, I would have like two kids, two dogs, 
you know, but life took a turn and threw me some other things. And, you know, maybe I'll have a kid when I'm 50. You know, Jesse's sister lived with us this summer for four months. And that was an experience on its own, an eye-opening for both of us, you know? So we, so maybe you're not ready, you know? I look at your life and I'm like, I don't know how you do that. I can barely, like, at least five out of seven days of the week, I forget to feed the dog. Well, one thing I do want to say about that, you know, is that when I got pregnant and I was married, an ostensible adult, it rocked me to my core. Like I had been actually trying to get pregnant. And then as soon as I realized I could get pregnant, I was like, I don't want this. I'm not ready. I haven't achieved X, Y, and Z. I I can't do this. And I didn't know that I actually had already become impregnated by my husband at the time. And so when (laughs) I took a test at Gelson's alone, by the way, because I'm such a freak, I was so upset. I was so petrified. I was like, all of a sudden I felt so confronted with the fact that like, wait, I'm not there. I'm not where I thought I was going to be when I would have a baby. Like I don't have it all figured out at all. Mm -hmm. Like what in the actual fuck? Like I can't do this. And I just want to say as someone who's on the other side of that and who does have two kids is that you're never going to feel ready. Like you will never be like, you know what? I feel so, I, I, cause I've been waiting for it too. My whole life I've been waiting to feel yeah. like now's the time. And now it's all, everything is perfectly lined up for X, Y, and Z. And it's just never going to present that way. Well, see, that's so good to hear from you because you're one of those people that I look at and I'm like, she has the life. She's got it all figured out. What? She's like, you know what I mean? I'm like, the husband's handsome. The kids are beautiful. They're living in California. She's got a podcast. She's got a great job. She's like running an organization to get people out to vote. I mean, stop, go on, go on. <laughs> but you know, it's like, we did think about that a lot. Like when Jesse's sister lived here. And I think that like, you just cannot prepare for things. And I guess like one of the things for me is that I always feel like you have to have all your ducks in a row and lined up and everything planned for something to happen, to go to the next phase. Like you have to, it's like, you know, Super Mario Brothers, you have to complete the level to move to the next one. And and what I've realized really during this time that's been super eye-opening for me because I'm such a person who likes to control things. Nothing's been controllable during this time. And actually the beautiful moments are like, not when you think everything's gonna go, the way that it's going to go. It's like when you're not prepared, I, that's the part that I have to start moving past for myself. It's like, okay, I'm 36. I'm going to have the house and the baby and it's all going to be great because you can grow up and, you know, then you've got to deal with things with the kids or something goes, you know, the business falls apart last minute or, or this happens. Like, you know, so that's the journey I'm now allowing myself to go on. And I probably, without the pandemic, wouldn't have gone on that journey. But things have been so out of control just completely out of my, I mean, all of 2020 is just like- Out of all of our control, right. happening, What right? is life, uh-huh. Right, so you have to wake up sometimes and you're just like, well, this is what it is. And it's not shiny, it's not beautiful, you know? But sometimes the beauty comes from where you least expect it, you know? It's like, it's like there was moments like when Jesse's sister was living here and we have like a teenager living here. I have a job, he's working like- we're, tra- we're all trying to do different things. She's on online school. Everybody's trying to get this done, you know? And it's not like this, like a movie where we're all just like out in front of the house and the credits come down and everybody's happy and matching outfits. Like sometimes you're just happy to like 
I found during this time, just get home and barely get food done. Do you know what I mean? And that feels like a victory and a win. Do you know what I mean? And like, you totally. really like the, like the two nights that I made dinner a week, I was like, I am killing it right now. Like she has it together. She has it all. You know what I mean? Six Zooms, made chicken spaghetti, dog got fed, actually took a shower, had a coffee, time for wine, I'm winning, you yeah. know? And so that's why I wrote that for my birthday in a long story is that like, that to me has become more important for me now than like all of the accomplishments and your career, which ultimately, Sarah, nobody knows anyways. Do you know how many times of my, like you think you're chasing your whole life doing stuff. And like, I have to go, I like go to school, to colleges to speak to people. And they're like, and what do you do? <laughs> and they're like, you know what I mean? And right. you're like, okay, so I have like done some things and they're like, yeah, we don't know. And I'm like, okay, great. Then like, why am I trying to do all this? If no, like nobody cares. Right. Well, I think ultimately it's like, it's about figuring out for you the identity that you can be happy with, like you said, when everything else is stripped away, you know, like as far as like setting the goalposts for family and everything else, that'll come to you when it feels like it's the right time. It's never going to feel like the perfect time. And one practical piece of advice is like, you know, Ian always says with our kids, he's like, I know you're going to show them so much love and like such a good life and all the beautiful things and incredible music and dancing you will never fucking remember to feed them. I'm not the head of food and beverage in our house. <laughs> like I, you don't, you don't marry me. Okay. No. And expect that I'm going to yeah. be like giving you three squares a day. That's food. not what I'm good for. <laughs> All right. So knowing what you know today through the highs, the lows, the pandemics and the Gaga, mm -hmm. what is having it all look like to you today? Having it all looks very different than it did in my mind 10 years ago. Today is having safety having one person that I truly feel that like would catch me if I fell and health for everyone. Like, honestly, like I, I, I know that that's so basic and like a Hallmark card, but like, I think that we've seen enough right now to know that if we're alive and we have someone, we're doing a lot better than so many people. And that should be enough. I know that that's cheesy, but that's what having it at all is for me right now is to like really know that I've got somebody that loves me. And that's the most important. I have one more question for you, Brandon, which is the riff. And this mm -hmm. is something that could be a practice. It could be a product. It could be a service. You know, is there anything that you do on the daily that makes your life that much easier or more efficient? I don't know. I think red wine is the riff. Like, don't you? Do you have a favorite? Mm, actually, I'm, I'm like not particular. Honestly, red wine is the riff. Like it makes my life easier. It makes it more efficient. I mean, I don't drink it like in the mornings, you know what I mean? But no judgment if you do. Right, no judgment, no judgment mm -hmm. at all. But I would say when I pour a glass of red wine and I usually listen to a podcast, I walk around the house with my Air, AirPods, EarPods, whatever they're mm -hmm. called, all at night. And I have my little come down moment of like a glass of wine. I listen to my podcast and it's just zen. I, I mean, that's the riff for me, bro. Love it. Love it, bro. All right. For anyone yeah. who doesn't follow you, Brandon, where can they find you? Just like Brandon Maxwell. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got rid of, I got rid of Facebook and Twitter because I think that they're toxic places for the, and they feel unsafe for me personally, but I'm on Instagram at Brandon Maxwell. And then you can go to my website, which is brandonmaxwellonline.com. I love you for being here today. I really could talk to you for hours. So thank you so much for sharing all your highs and lows and your honesty and your humor. 
And I will continue to troll your Instagram for inspiration and motivation myself. Well, thanks for having me. It's of a pleasure. Am I the, am I, I'm the first male, oh right? Oh my God, yes. And you're the first male ever. It was an honor. Yeah, these people that are listening are going to be like, this guy needs to take it down a couple sentences. But I love you. I appreciate you having me. Can't wait to see you finally in person one day. Tell the fam I said hey and I all will. the friends in California. Okay, lots of love. You too. Bye. Bye. That's it for today's episode of Having It All and Other Lies. I've been having so much fun talking to and learning from all these amazing women, and I hope you're enjoying it too. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review, and also follow along at Having It All Podcast and swing on over to my page at Sarah underscore Riff. I love hearing from you guys, so please keep up the DMs and emails. And if there's anyone that you want to hear from, let us know. In the meantime, we will look forward to seeing you next week.